for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view on the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. As the intro just said, it's time again for another episode of No Driving Gloves. The three of us are here. We're all back. We probably won't recap what we've done this week because I assume, did anybody do anything exciting this week? We never do anything. Yeah, no, I did get to get out in the shop and work some this week, so... That was that was pretty nice. So, still looking for that uh, person to hire to come in the office and take over some of my duties in here. So that way I can be out in the shop more. But other than that, pretty normal. Status quo for you, Derek? Yeah, pretty much. Um, went to a wedding of a friend and you know got my killer dance moves on. But other than that. I got distracted picturing your killer dance moves. I was laughing on that side. (laughs) (laughs) And it seemed, you know, we've we've had a pretty good run of weeks with automotive news and being able to pick on the, you know, some automotive news. It's been a pretty quiet week for everybody. I think everybody got partied out in Vegas with Will. I heard he was buying rounds over at the Bellagio and, that's right. I hit it big on the craps table and just started buying everybody, you know, and what it is, is everybody's talking about Christmas already. So we're, we're not worried about cars when Christmas is coming up right after Halloween. And we'll, we should do a Christmas episode coming up here and talk about things that you can buy us for Christmas. There we go. Us as in car, as in car, as in car collectors. I like it. Not as in us, but. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Us, as in the three of us, and they can send it to us. And and if you would like to be featured and suggested on those episodes, please send your gifts That's right away. There you go. In my uh, waking up every morning, I always spend some time on MSN. It seems to be just as controversial as any other news site out there anymore. And they always have some sort of car article. And one drifted across my desk uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was a a topic that's kind of partial to me because it's my generation, it's Will's generation, it's Derek's generation. And this guy had a column entitled, These Cool Cars from the 80s and 90s are Absolutely Worthless Collectibles. Let's take into the account, what is a worthless collectible? Does it mean it's not a lot of money or it's not passionate? Not a car that's worth buying? A lot of cars from the 80s and 90s, as we sit here today, we're going to think that they're never going to be worth anything. They're not worth a lot. They're boring, mundane cars. They're cars we grew up with, kind of the way I think of a Ford Fusion Sport today or um, trying to think, or, or Ford Focus RS or ST or, you know, I don't even know what the hot one is. And I'm not a big fan of the new Honda Civic Si. Uh, just busy cars that don't quite fit my thinking. And I'm going to say, I'm never going to, I'm not going to think they're going to be collectible. And I don't know if this is where this writer's coming from, but we did a quick overlook of this article and he suggests 11 or 12 cars and we'll see how many of them we can get through. And all three of us go, what the hell is he talking about? These cars are the epitome of what brings passion and enjoyment to cars, especially to people in middle class that have a little bit of disposable income. Well, we can all agree their Ferrari Testarossa from 1986 is going to be worth something. A couple of years ago, they were 60 grand. This year, they're 120 grand. Porsche, Porsches are just crazy everywhere. And unless you're driving a 928, they're, you know, anything, 944s are worth something. 914s, even though it's a 70s, are worth something. 911s are always worth something. It was amazing. I saw something today with a 73 911T in pieces. And then the bid price on it, six or $7,000 on bring a trailer. It seems absolutely ludicrous to buy a car that you can't guarantee is complete for that kind of money. And it's an old, with a lot of rust problems. And we, I'm thinking the author of this is a little bit 
older than than me. I'm the oldest one of uh, the three of us here sitting here talking tonight. Or, but we're going to go through the list and kind of voice our opinions on why we think this way. If if we do agree, there's a couple that we might agree with. But, you know, the first car this guy launches off with is the 84 to 96 Chevrolet Corvette, the C4 Corvettes. I have my opinions on this. I think Will does. I think Derek has a little bit of interest in Corvettes and knows some of these Corvette collectors. We'll go ahead and let him start. Derek, do you think the C4 Corvette is a worthless collectible? Absolutely not. Now, would you like me to explain why? Say, let's do this the quick way for you. Absolutely not. It's in the nature of my job preservation that this car remain collectible and hopefully worth something. No, No, honestly, we're impartial here. I'll tear tear apart a motorcycle or I'll tear apart a Lotus race car if it's justified. You know, Lotus, lots of trouble, usually serious. That's the way it is. But do you think a, a C4 Corvette in the whole scheme of the Corvette thing is a worthless collectible when we get, when me as a 46-year-old today, when I become 65, is it still going to be a worthless collectible? Personally, personally, no, I don't think so. I mean, right now, a C4 Corvette base model, you know, not, let's not look at ZR1s or anything like that. Yes, the base models are affordable right now. Maybe not. And and like John said, you know, this is we're we're pretty open here. You know, I have ties to Corvette history. We all know that. The Cor the C four Corvette is probably one of the least liked Corvettes right now by Corvette collectors, Corvette owners. There's a but there is a big following of C four Corvettes. There there is a a group of Corvette owners and collectors that they love the C4 because it's the Corvette they remember from being a kid or when they were old enough to buy uh, their first Corvette, it was the C4 they got. And they love that car. So even though they necessarily haven't retained their value right now, it's it, with any of these, and, and I think we, we're looking at this, we're only 30 seven 38 years out from 1980 okay in 1990 we're 27 28 years out i mean it's the end of 2017 this to me this is hard because you're trying to look at something and call it a worthless collectible you know in in 1930 Someone would have said a 1910 automobile was a worthless piece of junk and we should send it to the scrapyard. But now they're extremely valuable. I think with C4 Corvette especially, we're going to see it become more and more valuable as time goes on because there's going to be a larger following of them. There's eventually going to be fewer of them still around because people don't you know, there might be ones out there that are sitting out in the backyard under a tree. And granted, it's fiberglass. The body's not going to rust away. But everything else is going to have corrosion issues from the engine to the frame to the, you know, suspension driveline system. And somebody's probably going to get to a point where I don't want to restore that. I'm going to send it to the junkyard and people are going to rip the fenders and all the body panels off of it to restore a different one. Even though they're not worth that much right now, I think we're still going to move into a point where they're going to become more valuable, more collectible. And the other thing is, and and we'll probably hit on this on every car that we're going to go over on this list, whether we like it or not, is this is the way people get into the hobby by buying an affordable C4 sports car uh, or a C4 Corvette is probably one of the more affordable sports cars that have fairly high horsepower and actually are an extremely well-handling car. The C4 is a a very well-handling car. And I mean, you can take it out on a track and have quite a bit of fun with it. So really, I see it as it might not be a valuable collectible, but it's not worthless. There's a lot of worth in a C4. (laughs) 
I, I agree, especially too on the on my side of it, being that you know, good guys has opened it up to eighty seven. I mean, you could take an eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, or eighty seven, and and do some really cool stuff to it. You know, suspension mods, put an LS motor in it. Heck, you know, put it on a, a C five type drivetrain. You know, put a transaxle in it. You know, there's a lot of things you could do. I mean, the cars aren't ugly. They have a, you know, they have a pretty neat look to them, and yeah, they're they're, they're definitely not worthless on the customizing side of it either. Because, like you said, they're good handling cars straight out of the factory. Uh, independent rear suspension. I mean, they're they're actually they're they're kind of hard to get in and out of the way you kind of sit down in them. But you know, I. I don't, they're definitely not worthless for sure. Now I'll be a little bit of the, uh, Mr. Negative on this one. And we can talk about the C, you know, C4 Corvette is a good collectible. It is a Corvette. All Corvettes at some point in time become collectible. I joke that the 75, 76s and 77s will never become collectible, but they always will. When I started to get into Corvettes in the nineties, Mid-years were the the big cars, the the 63 to 67s. And people, oh, you know, you really don't want a 70 or 71. Well, the 68s and 69s became expensive. And then the 71 and 72s did. And then you had your 73 and 74s with their unique things. And then I think we've we've jumped to the 78 to 82s with the big glass rear windows. It's a different body style, a little bit different look. The C4s will follow suit. The The dashboards go bad in these cars. The glass tops go go bad. I mean, it's alluded to in this article that it's, you know, it's common knowledge. But as these cars become collectible, they built a lot of them. I mean, in, in Corvette numbers, they built, a, you know, a ton of them. No, they didn't build as many of these as they did Ford Escorts. But people will figure out the dashboards. We'll have replacement dashboards. We'll figure out how to repair them. The little Arduino and Raspberry Pi computers can run anything in the Corvette dashboard that could go wrong. And with the maker community we have out there, people will figure out how to program and make these things work. The engines in these cars, when you, especially when you get into the LT1, those are a wonderful platform to build off the major aftermarket manufacturers are building and increasing the power of these engines. And this will come into play in a couple of the other cars we talk about farther down the list. Those engines have come into their own. They're putting out six and 700 horsepower reliably for not a lot of money. So how you can say, you know, the price of admission on a, a, a running driving C4 Corvette's four or five grand right now, uh, if you if you look. I mean, price of emission on a ZR1, you can get into a ZR1 for the teens. You can get into a ZR1 cheaper than a Honda Civic. A Corvette is a good buy no matter what model. The ZR1's always going to be the, the top of the line, the one to have. The, you have the 90 and the 91, and then the 92, 93, 94, 95s are a little bit different. But their ultimate horsepower, they were king of the hill cars. They were on top, you know... They were the car to have. It was that or the Viper. Those were the ultimate 400 horsepower sports cars. Unheard of horsepower of the day. 400 horsepower, yeah. Even by that, in you know, a, a, a fusion will have a fusion sport is pushing 400 horsepower today. But in 1990, that was unbelievable numbers. Why they might be worthless and don't cost a lot. These cars will become worth something if you had it and you were in it for a long haul. I'm going to say just about everything on this list, because I know what the list is, is a keeper. You buy it now for little or no money, and in 20 years when I'm 65, these are the cars that are going to be your Barrett-Jackson big dollar cars, as I call it, home equity cars, where people will be doing home equity loans so that they can finally have these cars. But if you got the five grand now and you can put up with this, the, the troubles and the Mature, these cars maturing into the collector car market with the limited parts availability there is now, but as that parts market grows, I say this is a uh, this is a keeper. Well, and that's that's exactly it, John. Because the other thing here, you know, the the title 
uh, these cool cars from the 1980s and 1990s are absolutely worthless collectibles. If you look at anything that anyone collects, not cars, I mean, toy collectors, uh, clock collectors, whoever's out there, art collectors, whoever it is, the trick to building your collection and eventually having something that you've invested in and have made money on is to buy things when they're affordable and allow them to mature, as you just said, into the valuable collectible. So I don't even see where we we can, there can even be something called a worthless collectible. It just hasn't matured into its collectability yet. It goes back to the saying that's commonly repeated around me is, you can never pay too much, you just buy too soon. It will eventually, if, if it's a collectible, it's eventually going to appreciate into, into that dollar figure that you paid. It might take 20 years. It might be your grandkids who realize the profit on it. But at some point in time, everything becomes old enough to become collectible and sh- should become valuable. Part of this, worthless collectibles, I would say a Ford Escort GT from the 90s is going to have its niche market still might be kind of collectible, but that's going to be more of the worthless collectible. It's never going to realize something. I see the C4 Corvette becoming, I see the C4 Corvette becoming something valuable. And you're going to say, until it becomes 60 or 80 years old, then that's a different thing because then it becomes an absolute rarity, right? A, A Geo Metro will not be collectible. Yes, I, mean, I disagree. A, a Geo Metro LSI convertible, I believe, will become a collectible vehicle. Okay. The the Suzuki Swift, uh, G, I think it's a GTI. It's a LSI, Geo Metro LSI convertible, will become collectible. A Suzuki Swift GTI, which is a Geo Metro and Suzuki Garb with a, a 1.6 liter four-cylinder If you can find one, I saw one for sale on barn finds a couple of weeks ago. Absolute piece of junk. (laughs) Don't go buy this car. Don't go seek it out. But if you can find one of those, it's a very fun pocket rocket. And in the late 90s, I really compared that to my CRX SIs. Fortunately, I could have the CRX SI and that was a much better car than that. But there are the niches in each, each model, I think, that could be collectible. You know, it's not on the list, but what about a 40 XP? It's just a two-seat Escort. When's the last time you saw one? But they're a fun, interesting, unique car. So, I mean, how many times have you been at a car show or somewhere and the older gentlemen are always like, man, I can't believe I got rid of that, you know, 67 Chevelle or 55 Chevrolet. You know, they wasn't worth nothing back then. You know, and now... I mean, it's the same type scenario, too. I mean, I remember my dad telling me stories buying, you know, 57 Chevrolet hardtops, pretty decent cars for two or three hundred dollars. And, uh, you know, and it's 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 the same. It's kind of the same thing where, no, you're not going to go buy a C4 Corvette for two hundred dollars. But, um, you know, he did he did buy a lot of them and put them up. And there hadn't, we've built several tri fives here to shop, and there hadn't been one come through that I didn't go up in the barn and grab some parts that I knew we had or rob a piece off of a car or, or something, you know. And uh, he, he, he wishes he would have gotten more, uh, but he's collected several over the years and, you know, kept them, kept them up pretty good. I mean, they didn't right to the ground, but they probably could have been kept up a little bit. When I was a teenager, you could buy a 73, 74 Nova for four or 500 bucks. And as, excuse me, as kind of the, the rich kid or one of the richer kids or perceived, I never thought anything of them. Those were junk cars. I wouldn't want one. I wouldn't want to touch one with a 10 foot pole, you know, get it away from me. Why does, you know, why does this hot girl want to go out with this guy who's got this crappy Nova and not me who's got this, you know, cool pickup or cool CRX or 
buddy who's got you know a brand new Mustang GT. Never made sense to me because <laughs> you know you should in high school you should date us for you should date guys for their cars. That's that's, that's to help those high school listeners we have and uh, educate the uh, high school girls we have listening. I just watched an episode of Counts Customs where a guy built had one built by the count. You know, pl- yes, we're talking reality TV and believe what you will about it. But he was in his 40s, had it built for his brother, who had one when he was in high school, who regretted selling it, only paid a couple hundred dollars for it. And what do you think Counts Customs paid to totally restore and do to countize this car, whatever you want to talk about? You know, he's got to have 50 grand into the car now. That Nova was a worthless collectible from the 70s if this article would have been written 20 years ago. Now it's not a worthless car and people are putting money into it. But and talking about the yeah that seventy three seventy four era Nova, you know the the seventy four the nineteen seventy four Pontiac GTO that I had is the you know the Nova you know GM decided to move the GTO away from the Le Mans Tempest bodies and put it into the Nova body, different front sheet metal. So you were one of those kids. I, I, I honestly would say Derek would have right. Derek sure, with not? his GTO <laughs> would probably have f- fallen into that and and, and go, go back go back 10 years prior to me being a teenager go to the generation before me that was a teenager they would have made fun of Derek for his Falcon it's you know that's like and it's like a 1962 escort yeah but today it's a collectible car yeah and that's but that's the thing when when in you know, my dad was working at GM dealerships in 1974, and when the GTO came out in '74, brand new at the dealership, all the guys at the dealership hated him. The GTO guys hated him because they were no longer the Tempest Le Mans. It was the you know they'd ruined the car, and of course that was last year they built the GTO, but now. It's a fairly collectible GTO. It's not the the most collectible of them, but guys that are GTO guys and you know collect GTOs and try to get you know a good representation of GTOs, they're looking for the seventy four because it's a one year car. It's the only year it was built that way. You know, it, it's a unique body to the GTO, and it's it's become coll- very collectible. It hadn't been for a long time. Even when we bought the car, my dad was like, I swore I'd never own one of these, and here I am buying it. <laughs> and, and it goes into, I, I'm not sure what this author of this article said, because the next car will jump to, and I'm going to combine two of his listings. He says 82 to 92 Chevrolet Camaro and then Firebirds. And I, he doesn't say Trans Am, but I guess you could throw them into that too. Are Are you kidding me? It's a Camaro. Camaros, every generation of Camaro, again, is collectible. I, you know, I know people collecting their 78, 79, 80, 140 or 130 horsepower Z28s. Those are the collectible car now. You know, they're sister to the, the Bandit Trans Ams. The original Camaros are collectible. You're telling me that the whole, that, that, that high school era, you know, I was in high school 86 to 90. We're talking 82 to 92. That Camaro, which was the dream car of half my classmates, is not going to become a, 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 a valuable car. It's a worthless collectible. These cars trade for more than that C4 Corvette we just defended right now. They're a great alternative to the Fox Body Mustang, which, believe it or not, is included on this list also. He has Mustangs listed twice as... 79 to 92 Mustang GT and then 79 to 92 Mustang. I don't understand this article. Please, people, don't read MSN for car news is I guess what we're saying. Here's four cars, four pony cars that every generation of the car with the exception of the Mustang 2, and that just never existed. Let's forget that one. But even it is kind of collectible. There are people that want Mustang 2s. I've got a friend that is a major Maverick collector. I never believe Mavericks are collectible, 
but I see his Facebook posts all the time. He's in Southern Alabama in the Mobile area and he's into Mavericks. And you know what? There's huge Maverick shows. There's Mavericks everywhere. When I visited Will's open house four or five weeks ago, do you know what was there? Not only a Falcon like Derek's, there was a Maverick. How can you not say that a Camaro or a Trans Am or a Firebird or a Fox Body Mustang is, how can you say they're worthless collectibles? These are the most desirable cars right now because they're affordable and get you into the hobby. Somebody tell me, tell me I'm wrong. Well, you're not. I know of two high-end hot rod shops. I know one of them has won the Riddler and one of them has had a grade eight car. So, I mean, we're not talking fly-by-night rod shops here. We're talking high-end people come in there to spend a lot of money, hot rod shops. And both of those shops are building 82 to 92 Camaros right now. They're big money cars. So, I mean, on my side of it, there you go. That's, you don't get any more collectible than somebody spending, I don't know, 200,000 to three or 400,000 on a, on a car. Uh, One of them, they've taken all of the, the, the plastic off the front and made it all out of aluminum and, you know, moderned up the headlights and, you know, this is this is a for real high end custom car being built out of a, you know, a eighty two to ninety two Camaro, and I haven't seen any pictures of the other one, but I mean, he he told me that it was a it was a badass car. So so there you go. On my side of it, that's complete bogus. You know what, John? You're wrong. Just because you asked somebody to tell you you're wrong, I'll, I'll tell you you're wrong. I mean, maybe not about the Camaro, but I'm sure about something. But it, it, the thing I'm noticing here is in his article, you know, he is talking about the issue with the Iron Duke, the cast iron four-cylinder engine that was dropped into these, and that that is making the car, makes the car a worthless collectible. And that's fine if if everybody wants to think that the Iron Duke, you know, four-cylinder Camaro, Firebird, whatever, you know, is worthless junk. Go ahead, buy them up, and rip it out, customize it, drop a V8 in it, whatever you want to do. I'll go out and buy one that has the four-cylinder in it, stick it away for a few years, and when they're all gone and mine's one of few that's left, <laughs> then it'll be even better. <clears throat> So this maybe this article is actually good because it will make people destroy enough of the cars that the ones that are left are going to be even more valuable collectibles. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Well, you know, he is he is complaining about them being underpowered, but I mean, let's face it a uh, you know a, how much horsepower did a '69 SS big block trail have? I, I'm not 100 percent sure what they had, but I guarantee you these. You know, Chevrolet trucks running around have got more power than that. So everything, everything back then was underpowered. You could get a 307 in a shell. I mean, they didn't have any power. So, you know, what he's saying makes zero sense at all. I mean, yes, the 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 SS396 Chevelle is obviously going to bring more money than a 307 base uh chevelle but it's still a collectible car yeah you can't lump one entire era of a car into a worthless collectible because the base model of it was underpowered that that's the been the way the auto industry has worked forever there's always the base model and something with more horsepower that's just pretty much the way things go it's like saying square body chevy trucks are worse because you could get an oldsmobile diesel in them you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> i mean come on and diesels are cool <laughs> they are but not them oldsmobile diesels <laughs> thanks for garbage boat anchors there's a whole nother podcast how general motors destroyed the reputation of the diesel in america <laughs> that's right <laughs> 
I'll say that you have the base model, but there's certain people that like the base model cars. They don't want the V, you know, big V8 five liters and that. But as I alluded to, the early 80s were just coming out of the fuel crisis, the emission stuff. That's the days of the 130 or 140 horsepower Corvettes and Camaros. And there wasn't a lot of power. Everything was a dog back then. With some simple tuning and some simple procedures without destroying a lot of the originality. You can make those cars perform in the same thing as, but even the four cylinder Mustangs or the four cylinder Camaros, your Camaro um, Berlinettas and the your your base Mustang LX and GL, I believe, was the the base early on. They still make good donor cars for a five liter swap, etc. If you wanted to have the faster car which then again makes the lesser option cars potentially more valuable. But, you know, I will admit that, you know, a six-cylinder Camaro or a six-cylinder Mustang from 1965 or 67, pick your appropriate year for the model, is always going to be worth less than a 289 car or a Shelby car or a Yanko car. But there's something to be said about the purity and seeing that simplicity. Like the museum I work in, we've got multi-hundred thousand dollar cars. And one of my most enjoyable cars there to drive is a 50 Plymouth. It's, you know, very basic, very simple. But there's something to be said about getting in and getting that purity out of a car. And that jumps to where the next one I'm going to jump to on this guy's list. And there might be some validity in it is the 87 to 90 Jeep Wranglers. And that's narrowing down that, um, I get it confused. I guess that's a YJ Jeep. It's the uh, leaf springs, square headlights. And when when that came out, you know, the square headlights were cool. I remember Chrysler buying AMC and discontinuing the CJ7 because of its rollover and widening the track and making this Jeep a little bit safer and then by 91 or 92, they squared off the roll cage in the back to protect the rear passengers in case of rollover. But it is a Jeep. And it's, to me, and my ex-wife used to have a 95 Wrangler. And I hated it. It's, you know, inline six, five speed. It wasn't a sports car. And I'm kind of a sports car guy. But part of me kind of goes says to myself now and then, maybe I should go buy one of these. They're, they're kind of fun cars because that, you know, the leaf spring suspension, it's simple to modify. It's durable. It's off-road-ish. It's a Jeep. It's, it's as basic of a Jeep as you can get in this package. And the, you know, to me, the TJ and YJ packages, you don't have the coil springs, same basic body, same basic shape. Jeeps today are, to me, even worse. You know, they're too much plastic on the dash and the airbags, et cetera. And, but how, how can you discount any Jeep? I mean, this guy's putting current value four to $5,000. But for four or $5,000, you can have a heck of a lot of fun in a Jeep, and Texas won't take the title away from you either. <laughs> the, the only reason that, I think you could even remotely say that a uh, one of these, you know, eighty-seven to ninety Jeeps would be worthless is because of the square headlights. Uh, but you, you know, you're right, John. If you want a Jeep, you know, a new Jeep. Have y'all priced new Jeeps? Holy <laughs> yeah. cow, dude! Them things are outrageous. So, you know, for your you know, your Jeep collectors, why wouldn't you want one? Because it does have square headlights. I mean, they only made them from 87 to 90. Why wouldn't you want to go get the cream of the crop? Well, well uh, the square headlights actually existed through 95. Ours was the okay. last, okay. so, okay. of the square right. headlights. But and then, and then if they're that bad, uh, you know, I'm not a Jeep expert or anything, but I'm sure somebody makes a round headlight conversion for them. 
You know, that's a thing. That's the thing with a Jeep. Everything on that car is reproduced. I'm, if if you're as old as me and you used to get the J.C. Whitney catalog, it's like a Model T. You could order everything out of the back of J.C. Whitney and build yourself a fiberglass Jeep. You order the tub, the doors, the hoods, the fenders, everything. Well, I, I actually went to a the Smoky Mountain Jeep Jamboree this year with a friend of mine that's a big Jeep fan. And, um, you know, there there was not that many YJs there. I, I will admit that. But there were there were several and there were several that had been customized and that were cool. Um, so to, to say they're, they're worthless, you know, collectibles, uh, you know, like, like you said, we, we pretty much disagree with, with everything this guy said. We went to camp Jeep a few times with ours and I'll I'll admit a grand Cherokee is a much better off-roader than a Wrangler, but, it kind of, to me, in my mind, was why would I want to pay Grand Cherokee money when I could buy a Wrangler? Which at the time, twenty grand would buy you a Wrangler, forty grand would buy you, a, you know, a, a Grand Cherokee. Now, forty grand buys you a Wrangler, and fifty grand buys you a Grand Cherokee. You know, they've just, you know, it goes back to our conversations of unnecessary safety equipment and everything they've had to do to try to make this primitive vehicle basic transportation fit into the demands of, you know, a daily driver, you know, people today aren't going to put up with the single canvas, manual top, all that stuff that, you know, my ex-wife put up with. I mean, she commuted in it. We had 190 some thousand miles on that. She bought it used with like 14,000. You know, the new, the new Jeep that's coming out was just introduced, has a power top on it. So they've de-Jeepified the Jeep. Exactly. And that's that's going to be the interesting thing. You know, John, like you said, it's a Jeep. Jeep has a following. Jeep people are Jeep people. They they love Jeep. Just like any other collector, they probably have their favorite generation, their favorite era, their favorite body style of Jeep. But it has a strong following. It was built initially as obviously the general purpose vehicle for the military and evolved into a quite capable off-road vehicle or let's call it all-terrain vehicle. And people enjoy them for that reason. There's a lot of people that like to buy them and just drive them on the road. There's, there's a lot of Jeep owners. I've got a friend that's a Jeep Wrangler owner and he never takes his off-road. But he likes the look of it. He likes the feel of it. And that's just, that's what he likes. And that's that's great. So, again, as Will has said, you know, we're going to disagree with almost everything this guy says, most likely. Because there are the niche groups out there that will always have the passion, will always collect these things. You know, John, as you were just saying, it it brings up an interesting question of, you know, if we start adding power tops to Jeeps and doing the things that are starting to be done, is that going to start to lose the following? Different, probably different show topic, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where, again, I, I said it a little bit ago, I don't know that there is anything that is a worthless collectible because there's always a small group that collects it and thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. Well, we'll jump into the next one. And this one I might give him, I can kind of agree with him. It's the least collectible of this model run. And that's the, um, he says 85 to 92 RX-7. He means 86 to 92 because the 85 was the last year of the original RX-7 and anybody who says that is not a collectible, just you get turn in your automotive journalism license and go away. 86 to 92, and that's when Mazda tried to up the game. They emulated the Porsche 944 in styling and looks. The 944 came out in 83. There, you know, there's no doubt about it. Mazda's done, done this, and we'll talk about another car later on, that 
you know, they emulated and really got it right, at least in our opinions. But, uh, you know, the the 86 to 92 RX-7, I might give them a pass. It's the biggest. It's the heaviest. It has, it in the convertible version, it has the target top, the completely fold-down top, tries to be a hard top, the canvas-covered hard top. But it's, I will, I would go, it's probably the the worst of the RX-7s to have. The prior generation was probably the second best. And, of course, everybody, the 93 to 96, uh, we'll have somebody on as a guest here in the very near future who is an expert on the next generation RX-7 and can defend all of that. I'll, I'll give the guy a pass on the 86 to 92 RX-7. It's not a worthless collectible. It will eventually, in my opinion, be a collectible, but it'll be the least valuable of the three generations of RX-7s and easily forgotten because it had the most problems of the three generations of RX-7s. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll agree with that. It's not... As you say, I think we can give him a pass on this one. It's not the best looking car in the world. Uh, it had its issues. There have been much better RX-7s, as you say, and and we'll talk about it in the future, as you said. I'll go with you on this. I'll I'll give give him a pass and say that this one probably isn't the most valuable of collector cars that you should be getting involved with. I don't really know enough about them to really comment, but I do know this, that they're uh, they're uh they're eligible for good guys now. Well, that's 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 kind of oh, where that's I'm going true. With this um, one of the guys that I rode to football practice with had one of those, you know, when I was in in high school, and I remember riding in it thinking that's that's this is kind of a neat car, and um, you know, looking looking back at it, you know, there is room under the hood for a for for one of those LS motors. <laughs> LS in the world, you know, but um, I don't think there'd be room for a Coyote or a, you know, a late model Hemi or something like that. But, you know, you could put a, you know, you could put a 302 in it and fuel inject it. And, you know, I'm pretty sure those are independent rear suspension cars too, right? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of them stripped down with a hossed up little V8 in it scooting around the autocross i mean it has to handle pretty good if not you can probably make it handle pretty good on on, on a budget so you know i, I kind of see them being somewhat collectible um just for the sheer fact of you know me remembering riding in one when i was a teenager not saying i'm gonna go out and buy one but if you know if there was one laying around that was in good shape that was really cheap uh, you know i might pick it up you never know i'm going to jump on to another car it was there's like three or four more left to do and we're running a little bit long 90 to 93 mercedes benz 300 sl can give the guy a pass on this one also it's going <laughs> to fit about that rx7 thing i've seen ads for these sls well they'll give them to you because Everything on them's computerized. Everything on them's electronic. Everything on them's proprietary. And everything on them breaks. They are a maintenance nightmare. They are not... If you're going to get one of these cars, step up, get the 500 SL or get the 600 SL, which it, the 600 SL will bring you to a new realm of expensive repairs and maintenance. The 500 SL at least has a lot more performance and things. Uh, you can kind of justify putting the money into it. The 300 SL, I think, will become a forgotten car. Uh, again, it won't be a worthless collectible. Uh, if you look at the 100 series Mercedes from the late 50s, which was the taxi cab of the era, guess what? They're collectible. They're on the lawn at Pebble now. The the few of these that will e eke out of 
our lives and survive will they still won't be top of the crop, but they, they'll be few and far between. When you go to a show, you see 600SL, 600SL, 500SL, 500SL, 500SL. And if you're lucky, there will be one 300SL in that group. And that might be its saving grace is it will be the unicorn of this. Uh, I can't remember what generation of Mercedes, but, you know, convertible, but it's at the point where it should be it it's the next one to become collectible but right now the what i call the heart to heart mercedes convertible the 73 to 88 uh uh they were 450 SLs 380 SLs 560 SLs uh 300 SLs and i don't do chassis numbers those are, you know, those are the collectible cars. And right now the 560s are the only ones that gain any traction in that market. And they're mid-teens for their, those. This car, like I said, is just, a, in my opinion, a maintenance nightmare. We glossed over the Jaguar XJS, and I think that falls into the same category. It's a unique body style, but it also, especially in 12-cylinder form, has a lot of needs and wants and was never even looked upon fondly when new by Jaguar aficionados. And I think is filling, will fill a gap because there is no Jaguar sports car after the E type up into the present F type, you know, they they kind of left and that's where the XJS will fit in. So that's one I glossed over on this list also. So there were a few that, I'll still disagree. They're not absolutely worthless collectibles, but you could make a case for spending $1,000 more and getting a slightly different model of what he has on the list. But that, you know, that 300 SL is a damn good looking car. I mean, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's just a good looking car, you know, and to me that, yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about them at all, but I mean, just because it's a good-looking car makes me want to go buy one, you know. Uh, so, if you if you took a 300 SL, did your uh, LS swap to it? You know, put a modern drivetrain manual top, or just lived with the removable hard top and things like that. You'd have you'd have a great car, but that it was the it it falls into that. They tried to overtech it with a lot of rough technology. And I've worked in a shop uh, as a part, one of my little part-time gigs. And, you know, when you've got to put $5,000, $6,000 into top cylinders to make the top work and the car's only worth five grand, it's, it's tough. But going all the way back to the C4 Corvette we opened with, I think as these cars become more popular or become fall into that collectible or the desired range. And again, this is pushing a little bit beyond my high school years and I didn't have the desire for one, maybe the general uh, people a couple of years younger than me, such as you and Derek or people a few years older than me that were in college trying to become their doctor or lawyer. And this was their motivating force for becoming a doctor or lawyer so they could afford it. Maybe it'll fit into that group. Maybe I'm the wrong person for this group and I shouldn't be criticizing this car. Well, I don't think that at least from my perspective, I can't speak for Will, but this wouldn't be a car for me from the younger generation. Uh, it's just, it, it's a, it's an okay looking car. I don't think I have as much uh, passion for its styling as Will oh, does. Oh, come on, you know you like it. And that's okay because everyone's different. Everybody can like a different vehicle, right? Eh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like you. It's okay. But <laughs> but I think the big problem with these cars, and probably a good reason that he is including this car, is what John's talked about. The cars in this the 90s era, this 90s era high-end luxury even some of the the supercars with Ferrari and the addition of all the technology and the computer system and everything that 
went into these cars and as John called it, overtaking it is the biggest downfall to these cars because if they've got proprietary systems in them, they've got clearly out of date systems in them and we no longer have the parts laying around the repair ability of the computer systems they become very difficult to deal with it's and in some ways at least right now the way i look at it it's almost more difficult than with with a tech computer based system like this trying to repair it than you know, going back and working on a one-of-a-kind auto or the only automobile left from a certain manufacturer from the 1910s and you have to recreate all the parts, you have to machine them, do all that. It's it's easier to do that and, and use the abilities we have than some of these computer systems that out, are out there that it's almost impossible to repair them or get them to run again. And you've got to go in and just completely redo the entire computer system with some new system that you try to make work correct and, and do what it needs to do. And I think that's one of the big drawbacks on, on cars like this. You guys might just, John, you might disagree with me. I don't know. I, I totally, I just totally agree with you is that there, there's so much to this car. Now Mercedes is very good about always supporting their automobiles and they're classic centers, and I don't know if this car would be eligible for a classic center. They always support their cars. It doesn't mean they're affordable in their support of these vehicles. I mean, like I said, we could get top cylinders for it, but they cost more than more than the car. It falls into that little little hole, and I think every generation has that hole that things fall into as some technology comes along. Things, like I said, I alluded to earlier with the Arduino computers and our Raspberry Pis and things, you'll be able to to make these systems work. Maybe not exactly like the factory, the cars will still exist, but I think the collectors of the future, they'll put their money into 500s and 600 SLs. The 600s are a 12-cylinder. The 500s are a V8 version of this car, 5-liter V8. I believe Mercedes was still using that kind of nomenclature nomenclature at that point and the the 300 sl is an inline six three liter so it's it it again is that bottom of the barrel entry level car like we were talking the four-cylinder mustangs and four-cylinder camaros earlier they'll exist but these cars are going to give up a lot of these cars are going to give up their lives to make their bigger faster brother survive and now I'm going to jump to what are the, this will be the beginning of the two, probably what the heck was this guy thinking? I mean, the Corvette should have been a gimme to him. The Camaro and Mustang should have been a gimme to him. But products of the 80s and 90s that have had an influence on the world. And he says that the 1983 to 1982 Volkswagen Golf GTI is an absolutely worthless collectible. This car defined and created a whole section of the automotive industry. My beloved CRX would not exist without this car. Today's Focus RS would not exist without the Volkswagen GTI. The Volkswagen R32 would not exist without the Volkswagen GTI. This car, like I said, created a niche market, but nobody realized Nobody realized it. The 83, 84, 85 GTIs are extremely rare because they were throwaway cars. The ones that survive now are extremely lucky. The early ones, non-modified stock, seem to be desirable. I see them listed for sale not very often, but when they are, they go for what I think is serious money right now for what you're getting. You know, this guy puts current value two to $3,000. I couldn't tell you last time I saw a good GTI sell for anywhere close to that. You know, these are six to $10,000 automobiles all day long, if not more, dependent on condition. I'm just really at a loss for words on how you put the GTI in worthless collectibles. This car, 
this car is too important to our generation and every generation after us in what it created. Are either one of you overly familiar? I know we're jumping into this foreign sports car stuff and <laughs> we're about as far from brass air as we can get in <laughs> street rods or hot rods. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm not I'm not well versed in the Golf GTI. Okay, I'll I'll admit it. But as you say, John, coming at it from a historical aspect, you know, the the historian in me, the curator in me, as you say, the the Golf GTI, this is the beginning of what most people refer to today as what I guess I would call and most people call the hot hatchback. Exactly. The the souped up hatchback that is a freaking blast to drive is an incredible car. And I mean, just for that reason alone, the story behind the GTI, this, you know, the golf GTI, the story behind this whole idea of the hatchback becoming a souped up sporty, fun car, rather than just the family grocery go getter type situation. It's that alone is worth collecting it and, and telling that story and, and having it and, still having fun with it. I mean, that's, I might not all know all the details about it and all the specs and the tech and all that, but I mean, come on from a historical standpoint, awesome freaking car. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, my, my dad, he, he didn't have a GTI, but he had a rabbit. I mean, it was basically the baseline GTI, right? The, the GTI was built off of the rabbit. Yes. There were, Dra- drastic okay. differences in suspension and engine tuning, but so I mean, I I wouldn't mind having a Volkswagen Rabbit to be honest with you. I heck yeah, I'd like to have a GTI. You know, um, I just shared a picture with you too I, I, I just, of one that was. I just seen. saw it in a little little tubbage so, going on in that. <laughs> dude, there's a freaking mm. LS3 in it. Oh dear lord, dude! <laughs> I'm telling you, I walked up on that thing. And, and I was like, holy cow, look at this, Dad. Me and my dad, we went all over this thing. And, uh, yeah, LS3, straight shift, 9-inch forward. You know, I mean, I mean, I thought it was really, really cool. And, um, I mean, just we'll put it up on our, you know, social media. Um, but just a really, really neat car. And it's at SEMA, Okay. There's not really non-collector cars at SEMA, so there you go. And I'm going to, as we slide into our final car of the night, or for us tonight, for you, hopefully it's early morning on your way into work. My brother, who's five years younger than me, and somehow has put himself in a situation that in his teen years, he he's had the four-cylinder Fox Body Mustang convertible. He had... A CRX, which we have established I kind of am partial to. He had a Volkswagen GTI. He had an 85 GTI. He loved that car so much. The car he had before his presence car was a Volkswagen Rabbit because, you know, by the time he was out of school and in working, he had, you know, a budget to live on and drove that car for many years. And last winter, traded it in and bought a new GTI. That car made such of an impact on his life. He loves his GTI, and he had to buy it with the plaid interior and the special shift knob and everything that goes along with this Volkswagen GTI. I have another friend who used to live locally, now lives in uh, northern Indiana, huge Volkswagen person, huge GTI person. And he put a Facebook post up a couple of weeks ago or a week ago of plaid of plaid lampshades, and I guess his girlfriend's response was, no, we don't need any more plaid in the house because the GTI was known for its plaid interior, and it's made that much of an impact on him, and he's in his, excuse me if I'm wrong, I might be wrong on his age, I picture him late 20s, early 30s. And then we're going to roll into this final car, and believe it or not, my brother had one of these, and I've had one of these, 
and this guy and of every car we've discussed and we've even you know like i said we've discussed corvettes camaros mustangs gtis the 90 to 97 mazda miata is a worth this is just ridiculous is a worthless collectible this is the this is the best selling convertible in history it's outsold the mgb which excuse me if this car isn't collectible the mgb isn't collectible the Austin Healy's are not collectible. The MGA's are not collectible. It does this car does not make sense. This car is the Lotus Salon from the 60s at its absolute finest in perfection. Mazda has reluctantly admitted in recent years they bought Alons and patterned this car after them. The look of this first generation car, the NA Miatas looked like the Elan. They copied the engine, the valve cover placement, everything looks like the Lotus Elan. I had mine and my license plate was Elan Mark III, which is kind of a, a play on they, they've had, there's a, there's been various Mark versions of the original Lotus Elan, but three distinct, two distinct versions. And then to me, this, this is a continuation. This is what Lotus should have built instead of the Elan M100 that they built in 1990. It's the perfect sports car. These things go 400,000 miles. They're not worth a lot of money, but MGBs are not worth lots of money, but they're not worthless. And now, you know, now they're starting to, to appreciate as they get a little bit older and they start to have a little bit more and more problems. But, I mean, a Miata is a perfectly balanced sports car. For people like Will, pick up the phone, make a phone call, and... You can have a kit dropped off at your door, and you can put an LS3 in this. You can put an LT1 in this. You can put a Coyote V8. You can put a, you know, you can put a 5.0 in this thing. When you're doing the, I know when you're doing the Ford engine swaps, you're adding about 200 pounds of weight, at, if that, and you almost build a much better balanced car with 300 and 400 horsepower. There's body kits available to make this look like Italian sports cars in that. How this car makes this list? Tell me. <laughs> I don't know. I'd love to get an explanation, though, because as John has already said, if this car is a worthless collectible, I, I, I the three of us don't belong in this business <laughs> because we evidently don't know what what we're doing. Let me read what he says, and maybe it explains something. You know, current value four to five thousand dollars, which eh, maybe for a well used one, but I see these trade hands regularly for eight, nine, ten thousand dollars. What did retirees drive before this car existed? Were all they were they all in Cadillacs and Corvettes? Were cheap convertibles like Christ, the Chrysler LeBaron just more widely available? There are more convertibles now, but the Miata rekindled this country's love for the drop top after bringing it back to the masses in a sporty package. The Volkswagen Cabrios of this era, cute, we guess, but not as reliable and beloved as this vehicle. Sold new, it provides Porsche Boxster performance at roughly half the price. In fact, this little roadster got a big boost from Consumer Reports just a few years back for not only uh, matching the Boxster's performance, but doing so with fewer repair bills. The original models still make the rounds in the uh, sunnier climates, but the fact more that more than 410,000 of them have been sold in the U.S. since 1990 means there are plenty out there to choose from without going two decades back in time. I think he defended why this car is collectible. I mean, they sold 410,000 of them. It's better than anything out there. If this car sells for four to $5,000, say as a 90-91 car, do you know what a 96 Porsche Boxster sells for regularly right now? Is about six and six to seven thousand dollars. And the Miata sold for half the price at that time. I'm I've lost total thought of words. I am speechless on the insaneness of this being a worthless collectible. It's not worth a lot of money. They built a lot of them. 
I guess maybe I've looked at this list a little bit wrong. I'm looking at fun for the dollar, etc. As much as I love CRXs, you cannot go wrong with a Miata. Go drive one. Go test drive one. You, It is an unbelievable car. It is not a car you want to drive in, you know, two inches or more of snow in Detroit. So that probably, you know, put Derek out of this game for a while. I, I own mine when I live. I don't live there anymore. I live, you know, I own mine when I lived in Northern Virginia. My brother owned his when he lived in Central Illinois, I believe. And never left us stranded. Never, I mean, just reliable as can be. One of the cars that I truly regret. Well, we'll just leave it there. I, I, I don't even know how to go on after you say a Miata is a worthless collectible. It's it's collectible. I don't think it's worthless. These cars will continue to retain value. Uh, worthless to me means they're not going to do that. Uh, worthless to me means you're throwing money into a hat and it's going to disappear and burn up. A Miata is not going to do that. If you buy the right car, I mean, buyer beware. There are 410,000 of them. A lot of them have been modified. A lot of them have been abused. They rust. They're Japanese. The earlier cars have some problems. The 90 to 93s are the smaller engine. The 90, I think the 94 to the 97s are the ones to own out of all of them, including the 99s and newers. They didn't make a 98. They, you know, it's, it, I'm just, like I say, I, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a loss. This is, this is the perfect Lotus of the 1990s. This is, and the Lotus is the, the epitome of sports cars. No matter what it, you know, you think, I think any car person will tell you that a Lotus is the purest form of a sports car. And what happened here with Mazda, they built the perfect Lotus because it was reliable. It started every morning. They're cheap to repair. They're easy to fix on your own in this generation of car. Yes, the headrest speakers rust out. Yes, the plastic rear window cracks. But you know what? Part of that's the romanticism and the love of the, love of having any of these cars is a little the little issues that creep up. But on a Miata, those little issues don't mean you walk home. And that's that's where I'm going to leave it on that. So, do you guys have anything to say about the Miata? I've, I've kind of stolen that one and. I think, yeah, I think you pretty well summed that one up. Yeah, yeah. Um, what John said. Let's. I'll. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, I think with that, we're around our hour or so goal. We, you know, we try to hit that fifty-five to one hundred and five every week, and we get somewhere near there. Uh, if you have any opinions, we'll. I'll link this article on our Facebook. Um, I'll post some of the pictures Will mentioned on Instagram and such and follow along. Let me hear your opinions on what you think of this article. This, and I, I would love to reach out to Jason and see if he would want to come on and defend or explain or maybe retitle his article. That's probably what jumped off the page most at all three of us is he has justification in his article for what he wrote. It just doesn't fit the title for of what he wrote. And for that, I'm out of here for the week. What about you two? I'm done. I got work to do. See you guys in a week. <laughs>